Are you curious how today's guest had $500,000 of debt and ended up being debt-free within six years? So was I. Let's talk about it. Welcome to the Financial Residency Podcast, where we are devoted exclusively to the financial well-being of physicians and helping you achieve the financial freedom you deserve. This is your financial residency without the long hours and sleepless nights. Let's welcome your host and primary care physician for your finances, Ryan Inman. Welcome back, everyone. Really excited to have you here. Uh, We've got a great month. That's right. I said it month. We have a great month of content coming out. We're going to be talking all about debt, specifically student debt, and how we can eliminate it. So in today's show, I'm talking with Dr. Corey Fawcett. And while we don't just talk student debt in this show, and we talk about generally eliminating all debt, he's had some fascinating stories and some analogies that I can't wait for you guys to listen to. He's such a pleasure to talk with, and I really appreciated him being on. Before we jump into the show, though, I want to tell you guys something that's going on this month. So the collegeinvestor.com is hosting this student loan debt movement. And I hate student loan debt as much as all of you. It's something that's near and dear to my heart. And it drives me crazy, actually, to see how, as a country, we are so in debt. You know, my wife graduated with a six-figure debt from medical school. It took us quite a while to pay it down. And our story is a little bit different on how we did it. And I actually might, uh, I'm actually going to get into that uh, this month on our story for that. But the student loan debt movement that is going on is a really cool concept. So basically they have a student loan debt elimination leaderboard. And this is so participants can sign up and share how much they've paid down in the month of March and hopefully inspiring not only others, but encouraging themselves to keep paying down uh, more debt. And their total goal is to pay down a million dollars of student debt in the month of March. They're giving away a lot of cool prizes. They're giving $500 away every week to people who sign up for the movement. I just think it's overall a great concept. So I've decided to kind of hop on this and create the entire month of March, do all my podcasts, all my blogs, all about student debt. Uh, We're going to be having some really great content coming out on the blog over at financialresidency.com, as well as some amazing shows coming out. And I'll actually have Robert Farrington on the show next week, who's the creator and and owner of the collegeinvestor.com. And we'll be talking a little bit more about the student loan debt movement and answering a ton of listener questions. So I've had dozens of you literally call in with questions all around student debt and I'm excited to jump into those starting next week. But for this week's show, we're talking with Dr. Fawcett. He's such an amazing person and his story is is amazing. I absolutely loved speaking with him. So without further ado, let's jump right in the show and talk to Dr. Corey Fawcett. Dr. Fawcett, thank you so much for being on the show. I greatly appreciate it, and I'm excited to talk with you today. Well, Ryan, thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Of course. So we had met in person, actually, in FinCon last October and hit it off quite well and had a lot of things in common. And we started chatting about different finance stuff, and we got on the subject of eliminating debt and 
how physicians have kind of become numb to debt. And I was like, we have to have you on the show. Well, thanks. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. I'm trying to get this message all over the country because physicians are pretty much drowning in debt a lot today. It doesn't have to be that way. So I know that you've written a couple books and the one that I had read that I absolutely thoroughly enjoyed was, and I'll be linking it in the show notes, is The Doctor's Guide to Eliminating Debt. And I know this is a second of, I believe, three books that you have. And I kind of just want to talk in the show today what some of the stories and principles you you kind of mentioned inside the book and also just have a great conversation around the concept of debt and how people have become too comfortable with it and, and what we can kind of do to change that. One of the things that I get asked all the time, and I'm curious to know what you think or your take on it is, should someone pay down debt or should they invest or could they do both? Well, that's an interesting question. I was actually toying with writing a blog similar to this just recently because it seems like everybody kind of narrows it down to just those two things. Okay, I have an extra $500. I can either pay down my debt or I can invest the money. The reality is everything in your budget is changeable. Why are you telling me it's pay down debt versus invest? Why isn't it pay down debt versus buy a new car or invest versus go on a vacation? I mean, why do you pull those two things out? But people do commonly pull those two specific things out. And I think the reason that they really concentrate on those two is because there's a game that they want to play. And that game is this. I've borrowed this money and I'm only paying 3% interest on it. So if I take this money I have in my hands now, I get an extra $1,000. If I pay down my debt, I'm going to save myself 3% interest. But if I invest this money in the stock market, I might make 8% interest. I'd rather make 8 than save 3 And that, I think, is where people put these together. I don't like that very well because... If you rephrase that same question, and I said it in another way. Now, a lot of people use this with their house payments. So I could pay down my house or I could invest in my IRA. Well, if you were to pay down your house with the money, the money's not available. If you pay on your IRA with the money, the money's not available. So either way, you're maybe not going to have the money. But what is a for sure thing? If you're paying down your house, you get a for sure return on that money. If you invest the money somewhere else, you get a maybe return. So would you be willing to do it this way? Let's say you're debt-free today. Should I borrow money against my house so I can invest it in the stock market? Well, if I ask people that way, almost no one says, yeah, I should borrow more money against my house and invest it in the stock market because they're putting their house at risk to invest in something that's a maybe. It could go down. So when you word it like that, they think about it differently, but it's the exact same thing as should you pay down the debt or invest? Because either way, you're keeping your house at risk for something that may help you in the future. So I don't feel great about it because I think it's a little bit dangerous. That's an interesting approach. And I know that you're obviously with prior conversations that you're a huge advocate of paying off all the debt. ASAP, including your home. And I do think it was kind of interesting how you put it as either debt or invest, and it wasn't anything else. And I think part of that is, one, it's kind of been ingrained to be responsible with your money, right? I've got debt and I still need to invest. I probably shouldn't go take the vacation with that money. I probably should do something responsible. And I'm doing that in air quotes with that money. But it's interesting when you eliminate the student debt concept out of there, 
and you replace it with a home, how that becomes different. I tend to look at it a little differently because I think homes are, are a liability. So the more you're kind of pushing into a home, that equity is kind of debt equity. I understand that the concept of being debt free is enormous and makes tons of sense. But as a younger physician, and let's just say we're looking at student debt, you almost have to look at it as if they're not going for PSLF. That question of paying off debt or investing is actually a good question for them to kind of answer. Well, let's take that person. Let's take the new doctor who's, let's say, been in practice two years. There's a very interesting phenomenon that that doctor gets to experience that most of America never gets. And they are going to have a huge jump in income. Mm -hmm. You were a resident. You were making about $50,000 a year. You go out and you become uh, an orthopedic surgeon and you're making $400,000 a year. You had this huge jump. So the question is, okay, what are you going to do with that huge jump? And you mentioned before, do you have to do either or can you do both? I would say you should do both. When you get such a huge jump like that, and you're used to living on $50,000 a year, there's no reason that you need to jump your lifestyle to $400,000 a year. What if you just doubled your lifestyle to 100, and after you pay taxes, let's say you've got 150 left, once you put half of it in investing and half of it to pay down your debts? I mean, you have this incredible opportunity that very few people get. Very few people get a jump in income like that, and it's predictable. You know it's going to happen. It's going to happen on this date. Once you start your residency, you can actually set the day that your income is going to jump. And you can plan for that. So you should be able to make great headroads on eliminating your debt. And you should be able to make great headroads on making investments at the same time as increasing your lifestyle a little bit. Where people get into trouble is they jump their lifestyle a long ways. They jump it right up to that income. And now they're spending so much of it on their lifestyle, they don't have any leftover to invest or to eliminate debt with. It's all being used up for playing and having fun today. That's what we got to avoid. If you don't jump your income like that, you have the opportunity to do both. I love it. And you're even more kind than I am. Usually I tell some of my clients who are just finishing residency, like if you're living off, let's say I'll use your number 50 and now you're making 400. I tell them, move it up 50%. So now you've got 75,000 of gross, you know, that you're technically spending and living off of. I didn't give them the 100% increase, but I, I agree. And one of the things that I tend to see with residents when they finish is that they actually have consumer debt or credit card debt. Then they try to inflate their lifestyle too much too quickly. And that's where it kind of gets into trouble. They don't finish paying off their consumer debt before they try to go take a zero or a 5% down physician mortgage because they can afford the payment piece of it, not thinking the long term, like how much that actually costs. And then they kind of get in this cycle, well, then I'll get a new car because, and, and I totally understand why they've been driving a beat up car for a long time. It's like, where does it stop? They have this trouble of that delayed gratification. I've worked so hard. I've literally just been beaten down and working 80 hours and every fourth night in the hospital and all these things too. I just want to reward myself. And it's really hard to not let that go too far without having some type of cash flow plan or, but I hate the word budget, but budget put in place. It's a real problem. And the thing is, is you go overboard. You jump out and you get your new job. Yeah, you need a new car because you're driving a beater. 
So instead of buying a $15,000 three-year-old Camry, you buy an $80,000 new Tesla. Come on. If you would think about yourself as wealthy as opposed to a high income, and you think about yourself in terms of wealth, what is your net worth? Well, most new doctors' net worth is negative. So let's say your negative net worth, you get a net worth negative $200,000. Would somebody who has a wealth factor of a net worth of negative $200,000 be buying a Tesla? That doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. But when people think about their income, look at this. I'm making $25,000 a month. I can afford a $1,000 a month Tesla payment. If people think about their life as their income and think about buying stuff as in payments, they get way overboard on buying stuff. But if you thought about it as your total wealth, I'm a minus $200,000 position. What should a person like that be driving? I think it changes your thinking a lot. You can't just look at that big paycheck and say, I, I can afford a Tesla payment. I actually went through that when I was a resident. Really? As a resident, I wanted to get a new car. My car was kind of a hand-me-down. It was a very old car. My wife called it the boat. <laughs> it was an Oldsmobile Delta 88. Great big giant car. And it was having troubles going to the shop too much. And as a resident, I just couldn't afford my car being in the shop. So I was ready to buy a new car. As a resident, I was doing really good. I was making money. My wife was working. She was making money. We didn't really have any debts. I finished medical school, $18,000 in debt. I had joined the Navy, and the Navy scholarship paid for three of my four years. So I didn't have a lot of debt. We had good income. We were only living on half of our income anyway. And so I thought I always wanted a Mercedes. And I don't know why, but I just always did. So I went, and I test drove a Mercedes. I walked onto that lot, driving the boat. They kind of looked at me like, what's a guy driving a car like that doing in a place like this? And then I said I was Dr. Fawcett, and they just jumped to attention. Oh, hi. Well, let me see what I can help you with. Jackpot. I, oh, man. I drove that Mercedes. That was so nice. I couldn't believe how good that was. I mean, when you close the door, that solid chunk sound versus the rattle sound when I closed mine. I mean, the car drove really nice. I was drooling all over the place. It was great. At the time, that was a $30,000 car. Okay. This was 88, 89, right in there. And I was just about to buy it, and I realized, you know what? $30,000. There's a lot I could do with $30,000. Let me think about this. And I tell you what, the guy at the car lot did not want to hear that. He didn't want to let me think about it. So I went home, and I thought about it. And I could afford the payments. But the more I thought about it, the less I wanted the car. And I ended up not buying the Mercedes. I bought a one-year-old Ford Taurus program car for $10,000. I really fell into that bug of I have an income because my income had that jump from being a medical student to a resident. You get paid now. Whoa, I'm getting paid. Yeah. And I thought I could afford the payments to a Mercedes. And I almost bought the darn Mercedes. And at the last minute, I pulled out and I didn't do it. But I could have gotten into that trap right then that people get into a lot when they leave residency and start their practice. They go out and they buy a new car and then their spouse gets a new car and then they get this new house, an expensive house because they need a doctor house, not a resident house. And then the house doesn't have furniture in it. So they need all the new furniture that goes with the house. And then the house is on the lake and it needs a boat. 
you know, it goes on and on. And I've always wanted to go to France. Let's go to France on our vacation. And, and then two years into this, they went from being minus $200,000 in debt to being minus $300,000 net worth and a huge amount of debt. Their debt may have spiraled clear up into a million dollars. But since some of the things like the house doesn't drop your net worth a lot when you get it because you have debt and an asset that goes with it. So your net worth doesn't fall, but your debt goes skyrocketing. Mm -hmm. And suddenly you're a million dollars in debt. When that hits you, it takes a long, long time to pay off a million dollars of debt at the minimum payment. Yeah. How many days of work is a million dollars? Uh, a lot. A lot. A lot. A lot. In fact, there's a really neat chart that I have in the book about just paying off a house. I'm sure you saw that where if you had a $600,000 home mortgage at 3.3% interest, that's going to cost you about $600,000 in interest over the life of the loan if you paid it off over 30 years. Mm -hmm. But you're going to have to pay taxes on the money before you pay them. So you're going to have to earn $2 million to pay the $800,000 in taxes, to pay the $600,000 in interest and the $600,000 in principal. And if you're in private practice, you've got you know an overhead and the collections and billings and, and on and on. But you're going to have to earn $2 million to do this. And when I calculated that out into how much do I collect from an average patient visit in my office, average patient visit, how long will it take me to pay off $2 million for that house? It was 17,000 patients. Wow. That means in order for me to buy this house and pay it off in, and that was the difference. I'm sorry, it wasn't 17,000 patients. It was 42,000 patients. The 17,000 patients was the difference between if I paid my house off in seven years instead of 30, so I didn't have to pay all that extra interest. Now I had to earn $1.2 million to pay the taxes, to pay the interest, to pay the principal. The difference between having to stretch it out for 30 years instead of paying it off in seven, that extra interest that I was going to pay, it was 17,000 patients. And that equated to something like every Monday off for 10 years. That's how much I had to pay in extra interest. So what you're saying was, based on how you were kind of giving your example, that you bought a home that had a mortgage of 600000 on it. Over 30 years, you were going to have to basically pay another not only the 600,000 of principal, but 600,000 of interest, which came out to 1.2 million. Right. You have to obviously earn that money and pay tax on that money. So in order to earn enough to pay tax and then to pay the 1.2 million is how you came up with your 2 million figure, assuming there was 800,000 of tax liability and then the 1.2 to pay off the principal and interest. Over 30 years. Over 30 years. But if you went to seven years... So you were obviously making aggressive payments, whatever that came in, your note was done in seven, not 30 years. The difference in that, your math worked out to basically, you had to see 17,000 more patients, or you could have basically a three-day weekend for 10 years. Yes. That's crazy. And we never think about it in those terms, because all we think about is, I made $20,000 this month and my house payment was $3,000, no big deal. Mm -hmm. That's how we think about it. We never think about the total cost over the lifetime of me owning this home of this interest. And if you figured out how much interest you're going to pay and how many patients you're going to have to see to have that interest, very few people are excited about that. Well, one of the things Uh that you're not including is most people will refinance loans and extend it out. They'll have a 30-year, they'll pay it down seven years, 
rates will change or they have a lot of equity, then they realize they have a lot of equity. They'll go to refinance it out and, you know, usually take another 30 year note and push it out. This is kind of a dumb question, but there's 30 year fixed, there's 15 year fixed, and then there's arms or adjustable rate mortgages. And I know I talked a lot about some of these terminology things with Doug Krause in our last episode, all about physician mortgages. But in your opinion, if you know you're going to be trying to pay this down, let's say in seven years, which option do you choose? If I was getting a mortgage today as a young doctor, I would choose a 15 year fixed mortgage and I would try and pay it off ahead of schedule. Because that tells me that the most I'm going to pay is 15 years, and I got a better interest deal by doing a 15-year instead of a 30-year mortgage. I would go with that one. I would never, 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 ever get an adjustable rate mortgage on your house. Agreed. That is how people lose their house. Exactly. Because especially today, today interest rates are an all-time low. So which way are they going to adjust? They're only going to go up. And so the tendency of people is to buy the maximum house that they can afford the payment for. And if you do that with an adjustable rate mortgage and then the rate adjusts up, you actually can't afford the payment anymore and you lose the house. This reminds me of a story from when I was a resident. I had a attending there and I saw this patient who came in and he was really sick. Okay, He had bad congestive heart failure. He's on Coumadin. He's got atrial fibrillation. He's got all these problems. And he came in to see me in the resident clinic in general surgery because he had an umbilical hernia and it was bugging him. He said, you know, when I push it in, it hurts a little bit. And, you know, it just bugs me. Now, this old guy, he doesn't exercise. He doesn't play football or basketball. There's nothing he's doing that's going to really stress this hernia. It's a big base hernia. It's not really dangerous, but it bugs him. He wants to fix it. So I thought, okay, I think we could probably, you know, it's going to be local. And I say, we could get him through this. So I present this case to my attending. And my attending gave me a phrase that stuck to me for the rest of my life. He said, Corey, don't poke a skunk. Uh, This guy is in horrible health. And that hernia is not hurting him. Okay? He just doesn't like it. But if we operate on this guy, potentially we could kill him. But the hernia is very unlikely to kill him. Just leave it alone. Don't poke a skunk. If you poke a skunk, I mean, how many ER doctors see people that get rattlesnake bites? Almost every single rattlesnake bite I ever took care of was because somebody was playing with the rattlesnake. They didn't just walk by and accidentally get bit by the rattlesnake. They were playing with him with a stick or holding it up by the tail and it bit him. And that's the same thing. If you poke around with a skunk, man, you're going to get sprayed somewhere along the line. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what the adjustable rate mortgage is. You get lulled into this, oh, it'll be a lower payment because the interest rate's lower. Okay, that's great. You like that low payment? But the reason you picked it is because you like the low payment, not the high payment. Well, what are you going to do when it adjusts up and now it's a high payment? I mean, don't poke a skunk. Yeah, and it's recognizing the bad advice, right? You're taking the advice of maybe someone who's a mortgage broker, which they're not all bad at all. But, you know, they don't know your financial situation. They don't know everything about you, what you're doing, how you're doing it, what's important to you. And they're looking at it and going, the bank will loan you this amount. That doesn't mean you should take that amount at all. And it also doesn't mean that what they might be offering is the best choice for you, which I do see arms try to be pitched to people. Arms shouldn't even be legal. That's how strongly I feel about the adjustable rate mortgage, because that's how so many people get into trouble is adjustable rate mortgages. I almost feel that same exact way with universal life or whole life policies, but 
That's a different it's subject. Another subject. <laughs> totally different. Didn't want to open up that can of worms, but I, I feel pretty much the same exact way there. Inside your book, you did talk about how to recognize some bad advice. And I think it was really interesting that you pointed out the conflicts of interest. And this wasn't in terms of someone selling you something per se, but it was really dealing with the debt specific stuff. Would you mind kind of jumping in and talking a little bit about the conflicts that people could have when maybe looking for advice with respects yeah. to their debt? Well, let's take the stockbroker, okay? Let's, okay? There's a really good one. Okay, the stockbroker, he's a guy who you pay him by giving him commissions on what you do. So let's say you make a trade, he gets paid, right? Okay, you don't do anything, he doesn't make anything. He wants you to invest some money. So if you went to the stockbroker and he is the guy who provides you financial advice and he does your stock investing, and you ask him, do you think I should pay off my house early? He is biased towards you not doing that because if you use your money to pay off your house, you are not using your money to invest with him and therefore he won't get paid. So he will make nothing if you invest in paying off your house. He'll make money if you invest in your stock market. He is definitely going to tell you, oh, keep that low interest loan. You don't want to pay that off. You want to invest the money with me because I'm going to help you with your future. He has a definite conflict of interest in giving you good advice. The same thing, let's say, your insurance salesman. A lot of insurance salesmen masquerade as financial planners. Oh, boy. Yes, but what they, they do. really are is insurance salesmen, and they can maybe help you with some financial planning. But he makes his money when you buy insurance. Now, if you don't buy the insurance, and instead of buying insurance, you want to pay off your debt, Let's say you have a big mortgage, so you're going to need life insurance to have that mortgage covered in case you died. But if you paid off your house, you don't need the life insurance. So if you put your money into paying off the house, he can't sell you life insurance, and you're going to get rid of your life insurance eventually. So he is disincentivized to suggest that you pay off your house. So almost everybody in the financial industry doesn't want you to pay off their house because if you do that, they don't have the money invested with them. You got to find an advisor who isn't going to get paid by the decision you make. You need an advisor who's going to get paid maybe a flat fee or an hourly rate. And no matter what you decide, he will get the same pay. That guy doesn't have a big bias to push you one way or the other. And even if he's not doing it on purpose, he still has the bias. Even if he's thinking he's doing it that way, He's still biased. I remember a friend of mine who was an employed physician. He did colonoscopy. I did colonoscopy. So when he was an employed doctor for the hospital, if his day was really busy and he got a consult for a colonoscopy and he just felt, I just don't have time to do this, he would call me up and say, could you work this in? And I would say, yeah, I'll take care of it. And I would go do the colonoscopy. Well, one day the hospital decided they weren't making enough money on all the doctors and they let all the doctors go and said, you guys can all go into private practice. You know, we won't be a, your boss anymore. And so now he was in private practice. So now if he does a colonoscopy, he gets paid extra for it. He's the same guy. He has the same morals, the same ethics, but I never got another call from him that he was too busy to do a colonoscopy consult. And that's a great example of biases. Yeah, his compensation structure changed. And one of the ones that you did miss was an advisor that charges an AUM fee. Yeah. So if you're going to charge an AUM, assets under management fee, that means the more money that you get in your account in investing, 
the higher he gets to collect. Let's say he gets 1%. If he's getting 1% of a million dollars, then he's getting $10,000 this year. But if you can get $2 million in there, now he gets $20,000. So he can double his fee if he can get you to have a higher amount invested. He does not want you to spend your money paying off your house. He wants you to invest in him because every time you put more money in there, he gets a higher pay. That fee structure way pushes against him advising you to pay off any debt. You gotta be really careful about who's giving you advice and how do they benefit based on what you decide. There's fee-based planners and then there's fee-only planners. The fee-based guys are the ones that sell insurance. They make commissions. They can refer you to an estate planning attorney or CPA and they get a referral fee from that. And then there's the fee-only group of advisors that only get paid what is in the client agreement. If you have an agreement with them that says they get paid 200 a month, then that's all they get paid or you know, 2000 a year or whatever it ends up being. But if they still charge an AUM fee, there's still some conflict of interest there that, like how Dr. Fassat said, is that if you went and approached them and said, hey, should I pay down all this debt that I have? Whatever kind of debt it is, home, student debt, anything. Or should we look at investing it? There's still a conflict there, even with fee-only planners, unless they're a true flat fee-only planner. I know that you had touched on it in the book, and I really like the way you kind of outlined it with respect to debt. So I did want to touch on that a little bit here while we were chatting. I think an important thing to bring out that's different and unique to doctors is the thing I coined in the book called diabetic neuropathy. Yeah. The diabetic neuropathy, your foot gets numb and you can't feel the problem, and so you end up getting these ulcers on your feet. As a doctor, you go through medical school and college, and you need to borrow money. And every year we borrow more money and we just throw it on the pile and nothing happens. There's no consequence at all to that borrowing money. It just gets pushed off and we'll take care of it later. And every year we do that a little more and a little more and a little more. And by the time we graduate, now we're not borrowing any more money, but we don't have to pay it yet. It's kind of deferred. So it still keeps getting pushed down. We get totally numb to what debt actually does to us because we've been insulated from the effects of debt. It doesn't affect us. We just keep borrowing money and nothing happens. I don't have to make any payments. The number keeps getting bigger, but I'll deal with that later. And so now, since we're totally numb to debt, we get this salesman who comes up to us and shows us this new Tesla. It's only $1,000 a month. And the debt doesn't bother us anymore because we've become so numb to it over the years. Mm -hmm. And we just jump right in. And pretty soon we've jumped into enough of these things that we can't make all the payments anymore. Because even at $30,000 a month, there is an end to that. It's not $400,000 a month. It's $30,000 a month. And you will run out of money if you keep adding these. And we have diabetic neuropathy. Yeah, or worse, you get stuck, right? You're working in a job and then all of a sudden there's, there's a type of procedure you don't like doing or there's a certain aspect of your job that you don't want to do anymore, but you can't make a change. You can't go down to... You know how we were chatting earlier about having a three-day week for 10 years in a row. Like you won't be able to do that because you'll have added these monthly payments on too aggressively, too quickly. You allowed your lifestyle to creep way, way too fast and it puts you in a tough spot. Let me tell you a story about how that happened to me. When I started my practice here, I think I was only about $6,000 still in debt. Three years later, I was half a million dollars in debt. So you went from 6,000 to 500,000? Yep. Okay. I bought a house and a motorhome and my practice and a property to build a house. I mean, I had this new income, so I was buying stuff. I needed to hang out with you. <laughs> so I went to half a million dollars in debt. And then I got on this kick about getting out of debt. 
And I decided that's a long story. And that whole story is told in the book in the beginning of mm -hmm. why I decided to get out of debt. But I paid that all off over six years. And this is what happened right at the end of that. When I got done paying off the debt and I no longer had that hanging over me, I had a couple of procedures that I did in the office that I didn't like to do. And it was vascular surgery and thoracic surgery. I didn't really like either one of them. All those patients had to be in the ICU. I got lots of phone calls at night. I only did them because they were the highest paying ones and my partners did them. I was afraid that if I stopped doing those, my income would drop significantly and I couldn't pay my debt. So I was the stuck guy you just described mm. at that point when I had the debt. I was afraid to give up something I really hated doing for the money. And once I was debt free, I had worked up the nerve to say, okay, now I can't lose my house if my income goes down because it's paid off. I'm going to get rid of vascular surgery and thoracic surgery. I don't like doing them. So I gave the vascular surgery to one of my partners who loved doing it. And I gave the thoracic surgery to another partner and I crossed to my fingers. And you know, my income never changed because when they got those cases that had to displace something from their schedule onto mine in return. And I picked up cases I liked, got rid of the ones I didn't like. And my practice was better and my income did not fall. But I was afraid to make that move when I was in debt. I was afraid of giving up a lucrative procedure when I had a house payment to make. And once I no longer had that hanging over my head, I had the freedom to choose. I chose to get rid of it and nothing happened. If I'd have known nothing happened, I'd have got rid of it a long time ago. But I was afraid because of the yeah. debt. That's a great story. And thank you so much for sharing it. I love it. And now it's time for the curbside consult. If one wants to be debt free, what are some of the steps that they can take right now today? They're listening, they get inspired by listening to you and they say, you know what, I want to do this. What are some of the steps that they can take in order to become debt free? Okay, that's chapter six in my book. It's called From Decision to Debt Free in Four Easy Steps. And let me tell you what those steps are. Step one is first you need to assess the problem you got to sit down and write out exactly how far in debt am I. Now, most of the people who contact me, I do one-on-one -on -one counseling to help people with their debts and get them out of debt. Most of the people who talk to me, in the beginning when they first contact me, they don't know exactly how far in debt they are. Mm -hmm. They haven't actually looked at the debts because they don't want to. It's kind of the ostrich thing. I know, gosh, it's so bad I don't want to look at it. And so they call me. But then I make them look at it. <laughs> so yeah. it didn't help. Because you have to assess the problem. Okay, where am I today? Okay, that's step one. Step two, what is my goals? You need to establish what it is you want to do. Here's where you are right now. Where do you want to go? If you were on a journey, you can say, I'm right here in Grants Pass, Oregon. I want to go to Disneyland. I can map out that journey if I know where I start and I know where I want to be. So step two is to establish where you want to be. So in this case, you want to say, I want to be debt free. Step three is you need a spending plan or a budget. Because what you need to do is figure out how much of your money that's coming in is required to keep your lifestyle going and how much of it is extra. We all have some extra money in our budget and we use it for piddly things. And if we don't keep a budget, we don't realize how much we're piddling away. You've heard of the latte factor? Oh, yeah. If you ask somebody who drinks latte a lot, how much do you spend a month on latte? They'll give you a number. Oh, 50 bucks. But the reality might be they spend 150 bucks. But see, they haven't been paying attention, so they don't really know how much they have. So you've got to set up a budget so that you know what's available. And when you know what's available, let's say you've got $2,000 a month left over. Now you can apply that to your debt. 
And when you do that, I like to use something that's called the snowball method. And you order your debts from smallest to largest. And let's say in this example, your smallest debt's $100 a month payment. And your second one is a $200 a month payment. And your third one is a $300 a month payment. Mm -hmm. And your fourth one is $1,000 a month. That's your house. And you have $2,000 a month to say, I want to get out of debt with. Most doctors could find $2,000 a month. Some of them can't. Some of them have really backed themselves into a hole and they can't. But let's just use the $2,000 number. So what you do with the snowball method is you take that first debt, which is only $100 a month, and you pay the $2,000 to that debt. So now you're going to make a $2,100 a month payment. Well, the amazing thing is when you have a payment that's only $100 a month and you spend $2,100 on it a month, that debt payment disappears really fast. Mm -hmm. You pay that off right away. Now you've paid that one off. Then you take the $2,100 and you add it to the payment of the next debt. So you only concentrate on one debt at a time, just like a magnifying glass, focusing the sun to make a fire. That's the way you do this. One debt at a time. Pay the minimum payments on everything else and tackle this one. Get it gone. So then you're going to take this $2,100 onto the $200 debt. So you're making a $2,300 payment. When that one's paid off, very rapidly, you go to the next one, add that. Now you're making a $2,600 payment. You pay that off. And then you tackle your $1,000 mortgage payment. And you're going to be making $3,600 payment on your mortgage. Now, one person that I recently did this with got their amount that they could put into it. And it turned out that they were paying off one debt a month. Wow, that's awesome. And if you can find $2,000, that's often what happens. Because a lot of the debt you said is consumer debt. You know, I owe mm -hmm. on this credit card and I got some on this other credit card. And I owe Sears this much. And I bought some furniture on this time thing. So there's a lot of little ones right up front. And this person for eight months had the ability to pay off one debt every month. And it was gone. And then they're working on the big ones. And the big ones are going to be your student loans and your house. And a lot of people give up when they get to there. They get everything paid. Like Dave Ramsey likes to say, pay off everything except your house. I can't believe how many people that I meet in a meeting and they'll say, hey, I'd like you to know I'm debt free. I said, great. What did you do to celebrate your last house payment? Oh, well, I meant I'm debt free except for the house. Yeah. Oh, so you're not debt free. Yeah. Well, okay. Yeah, I'm not debt free. Uh, so a lot of people will go right up to the house or right up to their student loans and then they stop. They got all this momentum going. They're paying off all these debts. They've got all this extra money that they get attacked to it. But the next one's not going to fall in only a month. It's going to take several months to pay off. And so suddenly they get discouraged and they quit. Don't quit at that point. You're not that far away. I paid off over half a million dollars in less than six years when I decided to go after it and get rid of this with the snowball method. Start and don't take your eyes off the goal until you've completed all the debt. You will be debt free. And I tell you what, once you get to debt free, almost no one ever says, gosh, I'd like to borrow that money against my house again. I'd like to have a house payment again. You don't want to go backwards. Everybody who has a house payment has these big talk about how, yeah, don't pay off the house, invest the money. This is your last great tax write-off. And they have all this stuff saying. But everybody who's paid off their house sings a different tune. They say, oh, I don't have a house payment anymore. I don't want to do that again. It's a very different feeling to be debt-free. And you cannot really anticipate what that's going to feel like until you get there. But very few people who get debt-free go back. One of the things that Taylor, my wife, and I have done is last year we were able to pay off all her student debt. And that was a big milestone for us, a big thing. But we have not tackled to pay off our house in tell, five or seven me, years. How did you feel when you sent in that last payment? Oh, it was amazing. 
it was amazing. We did it a little differently though. I mean, and I've got a show coming up talking about how we did it, but we actually did it through real estate and then ended up liquidating some real estate. And so it was a very large last payment. It was an amazing feeling the next month to not see $2,100 or 2100 and something, I forget, but go out the bank every month. So when you do that for your house, you're again going to experience that same amazing feeling. Oh, we're excited. I mean, right now we essentially, and I know we didn't chat too much on this inside the show, but you know, you want to make sure you're maximizing some of your retirement stuff. And so we've always done that. Outside of that, we're investing in real estate just based on my background and family background and everything. We were doing that. And then one that came to fruition several years earlier than we thought, we decided to uh, essentially take the money off the table, liquidate a couple pieces of real estate that we had done to pay off all her debt. And now we're focusing on still investing and getting our retirement stuff together, making sure we're not falling behind on any of that stuff. And now we're kind of aggressively targeting the uh, the home loan. Very good. We're still I, I, several I, years away though, but it's something that's coming. We're celebrating little milestones every 10%. Basically, It usually so. takes a few years to get the house done, but when it's done, it's done. Yeah. We're currently like at year nine is essentially what we're going to be looking at. That's good. So Better than year 30. I 100% agree with that, but one thing you mentioned that is good to point out again is don't leave any free money on the table. And so if you, for instance, are employed by an employer who has a retirement plan that offers a match, that's free money. Don't avoid putting money in there to pay off your debt and miss that free match. That's 100% interest in your favor. That's really hard to beat, guaranteed. So what I usually tell people, and most people, if they start off this way and they don't go buying too much stuff right away, they can usually max out all of their protected retirement plans like 401ks and IRAs. They mm-hmm. can usually max those out and then everything else pay to debt. That's kind of where I like to be. Because most doctors can do both unless they've been getting so far in the hole over those few years that they now don't have any wiggle room anymore. It'd be great to talk to residents when they come out so they don't get into that position. You can usually do both. But at least don't let that match stay on the table. My wife and I were kind of somewhere in that hybrid range that we get all of the investments paid. We still separate stuff out and invest in other things. But we were actively kind of putting additional payments into the house and and that we obviously don't have any consumer debt or anything like that. But, you know, it really depends on the magnitude. If you're coming out of training with 40000 in credit card debt and you've also got 300000 in student loans, you, you probably shouldn't be buying a house right away, even though you maybe have a family and you're growing and you need to, or you want to, you really need to kind of take control over consumer debt, have a game plan for the student debt. And then instead of buying that million dollar house and adding the Teslas on top of it, you know, maybe look at a much more affordable house. That's hard to do in a high cost of living area. But, you know, these are things that I think you need to have a plan. That's really what it is, is eliminating debt is all, all it is, is basically having a plan for it and don't keep piling on. If you're in a high cost of living area, you absolutely have to get your debts paid off before you buy a house because the house is going to be disproportionately expensive in your budget. Yeah. And you've got to make room for it. And I think residents, when you go to your first job, you should never buy a house. This is something I covered in my first book, The Doctor's Guide to Starting Your Practice Right. When you transform into becoming an attending, don't buy a house. Tackle these debts. Make sure that you're really going to stay there because if you move into this town and two years later you're moving again, boy, you're going to wish you didn't buy a house. <laughs> or you're going to be a landlord. Or you're going to be a reluctant landlord. And yeah. those don't work out so good. Yeah, you didn't not everyone's be a cut landlord. out for it. 
And no one's cut out for being a reluctant landlord because that piece of property was not bought with income in mind. True. It was bought for you to live in. Those are different criteria. And you don't want to turn that into a rental when you bought it to live in because it isn't going to make you any money and it's going to be a headache. So if you just rent first for the first couple of years, you'll get ahead of your debt. You'll make sure you're really going to stay in this area. You'll learn the area. And then at your leisure, you can go house hunting and pick the house you want. You're not in a hurry. You're not moving. You're right there. You can take your time. You'll get a better choice of house and you'll be way better financially when you make that move. Amazing advice. Well, Dr. Fawcett, thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to meeting up with you in a few months here. Thanks. I'd love to come again someday. What a fun interview. I absolutely love talking with Dr. Fawcett. It's just, he's such a great guy. And I know we hinted at it a few times and he said a few chapters here and there, but if you guys have any debt at all, you really need to pick up his book. And I have a link to it in my show notes to go grab it out on Amazon. It's literally $7, $6.95 or something like that. Go pick up a copy of this. Don't go to Starbucks today. Go pick up a copy of his book if you have any debt at all and read it. Check it out. I think you're going to get a whole new perspective on debt and hopefully to help you tackle your student debt and other debts you may have. Well, I'd mentioned it in the intro. Next week, we're going to have Robert Farrington on from thecollegeinvestor.com. We're going to be talking all about this student loan debt movement and this elimination leaderboard that he's created, how you can win some cool prizes. Some people are winning $500 a week when they sign up for the movement. I think it's amazing. There's going to be tons of resources uh, to help you get out of student debt from repayment plans to forgiveness and everything in between. I'm also creating a ton of content. I'm going to have at least four or five blog posts out this month on student debt, uh, specifically public service loan forgiveness, each of the uh, repayment options, payee, repay, IBR, as well as some other general questions that I've been asked all around student debt. Next week, we're going to be chatting all about it, answering your guys' questions on the show with Robert Farrington. Have a great week. Talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to the Financial Residency Podcast. This episode has ended, but your financial residency continues online. Head over to financialresidency.com, where you'll find links to any resources mentioned in today's episode, along with other valuable tips and information that will help you regain your financial freedom. That's financialresidency.com.